My name is Steve Gould. I'm a professional drummer and an amateur thinker. My favorite part of life is learning, which is great because there's so much to learn. That's what this show is for. Thinking out loud, discussing ideas, sharing conversation, listening, growing, and hopefully learning something. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Thanks for listening. As always, I really appreciate it. In particular, this week, I'm feeling super appreciative of my Patreon supporters who are very literally keeping this show alive. The monthly cost of me hosting the podcast and the time it takes for me to create the episodes is becoming increasingly difficult to manage with my performing schedule as a drummer and with just the financial landscape of post-pandemic music industry. So I want to give a specific shout out to the people who support me on Patreon, the folks that contribute monthly on the various tiers of financial contribution. They're actually making the show happen. So this episode is literally brought to you by Laura Sharber, Jake Nyberg, Tyler Cuchera, Derek Logan, Steve Mascarello, Brian McWhite, Chad Chrisman. I appreciate you guys. And if anyone else feels motivated to contribute to the show, I've got some goals for the kind of financial support that can keep the show happening for long term. I'd love to reach those goals. Like I've mentioned before, there's additional content on Patreon. It's not just like a charity thing. And each of the tiers of support has different content. In fact, there's some specific additional content regarding Deconstruction Episode 3. In the first two Deconstruction episodes, I shared my journey through conservative evangelical Christian faith, childhood, high school, college, 20s, my 30s, the way that's all evolved. And I'm setting up specific links to various forms of media and books and whatnot on Patreon. All that stuff is you know, available for purchase through Amazon. It's like, these aren't books that I wrote. I'll list them out here in a second. But a few of the items are just like media that's available online, but it's kind of hard to come up with if you were just using a Google search bar. So on my Patreon page is just uh, some convenient links to that stuff, including, I want to point these out in particular, a lecture by a guy named Skip Moen on what it's like to read the Bible with paradigms in place before we encounter the text itself. I mentioned that in episode one, how I realized at a certain point that I was always engaging the Bible with some ground rules that were given to me ahead of time, ground rules in the form of a paradigm, or another way to say it would be an expectation. Like I've already decided what certain parts of the Bible are about. I've already decided that the Bible as a whole is only attempting to answer certain questions. And therefore that boxes in anything that the Bible might be trying to communicate. This lecture from Skip is really helpful in that regard. I've also got a lecture from a guy named Rabbi David Foreman. He's part of an organization called Aleph Beta, and they put out a ton of really compelling content about understanding the Torah in particular, the first five books of the Old Testament. This lecture of his centers around Genesis 1 and 2 and is really compelling. There's a link on Patreon at the moment 
for a guy named N.T. Wright, who I also mentioned in the first two episodes, and a lecture of his called The Authority of Scripture. This is from the 80s. It's a transcription, so you're not listening to it. You're just reading what was a verbal lecture. And Wright shares his perspective on why the Bible has authority for a Christian. And this is not something that I just took from him and ran with for the rest of my life. In other words, what Wright shares in this lecture is not what I currently believe necessarily, but it was so helpful for me to encounter a few years ago when I first read the article. I probably read it like 10 years ago, just to realize how often I was throwing around the word authority with relationship to the Bible as if I understood what the term meant and what the implications of that term are. N.T. Wright takes some time to really expand on and unpack what the word authority could possibly be referring to when it comes to the Bible. There's also a link to a wonderful podcast episode by Malcolm Gladwell on his revisionist history show called Generous Orthodoxy. It's about a Mennonite minister whose son comes out as gay and has to go through the process of loving his son while also submitting himself to the leadership of the Mennonite church. And the podcast episode was very impactful for me. There's a link to a bunch of books as well. Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Universal Christ by Richard Rohr. God in Search of Man by Abraham Heschel. The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Living Buddha, Living Christ by Thich Nhat Hanh. This by Michael Gunger. And a couple of blog posts by this philosopher I like named Tim Urban. Now, again, if if you want to just listen to this audio right now as I describe all of these book titles and then just type them into your your Google search bar, you can probably find this stuff. I've compiled it all in a post on my Patreon, though, just to make it convenient. And I'm not sharing this as an attempt to change anyone else's mind. It's rather just additional insight into how my thought process evolved and how these resources played a role in that. So head on over to patreon.com slash Steve Gould and consider supporting the show if you'd be so generous. In return for your support, I've got the list of resources regarding my deconstruction that I just mentioned, as well as a bunch of additional content. And before I go any further into today's episode, I want to revisit my new experiences segment. I bailed on it for the first two episodes of deconstruction, but For this one, I want to bring up a specific comment that I've received a lot lately, which is regarding me playing in churches still. I still regularly play at Christ Church of the Valley in Phoenix and other churches, some here in LA, some elsewhere around the country. And folks have been asking me, what's that like? And so that's my new experience to share with you for this week. Playing in a megachurch or an evangelical church of any kind, while not totally buying in to the ideology of evangelicalism. And when I say I don't totally buy in, I mean, I don't believe everything about it, but that doesn't mean I believe nothing about it. When I'm sitting at a church, I feel like there are a lot of things the church teaches or stands for that I agree with. And then there are some things that I don't agree with. For a long time, I was afraid of disagreement. And that's a pretty common trait among human beings who are trying to work together and cooperate. Disagreement is a difficult hurdle for cooperation. At this point, I don't fear that stuff anymore. So that's kind of the nature of the new experience. I'm sitting in a church, looking out at everyone, my fellow musicians on stage, 
the staff members at the church, the people who attend the various services. And I know that we don't all look at the world the same way. And I'm just not afraid of it. It's actually very freeing. And I'll say this about that. I think a healthy society requires coexistence among people who don't look at life the same way. People who don't share the same worldview, people who don't share the same profession or passions or preferences, people who don't share the same skill sets or even language or cultural norms. We all have to still share the earth. We have to get along with each other enough to cooperate even though we don't agree about some of the fundamental natures of our cooperation. And at this point, that feels to me like a muscle that I can either grow, strengthen, and develop, or I can allow it to atrophy. I play in church every weekend. Number one, because I really enjoy music. Music of any kind. Jazz, rock, pop, funk, wedding receptions, church services, live outdoor stages, or recording studios. I like music. I like it wherever I can get it as a performer. Number two, I play in churches every week because I like people. And every weekend at my church in Phoenix, I get to play with a different bass player, a different guitar player. We all, all these musicians rotate through the various campuses that this church has, and it's always a different lineup every weekend. Most of these folks are friends of mine from the past five years, but like last weekend, sometimes I'm meeting someone new, and I I now have a new friend because of playing last weekend. But thirdly, and maybe most importantly, I'm playing in church every weekend in order to strengthen my muscle of coexistence and cooperation with people that don't share the exact same worldview that I do. I found it to be really beneficial. I also can observe the strong instinct to run from cooperating with people who disagree with me. People who believe things that I don't believe, I can feel deep inside me this instinct to get away from them. I don't think that's healthy. It makes sense, even from an evolutionary standpoint, the way tribalism affected our species 150,000 years ago, worldviews function like a glue for a group of people that are trying to work together. And someone who doesn't share the same worldview is kind of like a, a weak point in the glue, a crack in the integrity of the group. But I don't think that's how the modern world functions. In fact, I think it's the opposite. The strength of our society, the health of our society, requires not only diversity of thought, but acceptance of that diversity. And as a guy who's no longer an evangelical Christian, I feel like I get a chance to exercise that muscle every weekend when I play music at evangelical churches. Okay, so the rest of this episode is going to be just me sharing questions that were posed to me, either through DMs or through Q&A Thursday or, or simply discussions with friends, and then I'll answer the question. Here's the first one. It's from a bass player friend of mine from Minnesota. Hey Steve, I've been on a similar journey with deconstruction, and I'm having difficulty with a particular area of this embraced uncertainty when it comes to religion and truth. The topic is good versus evil. 
Absolute truth is an easier foundation to abandon, but things of good versus evil are founded in human experience. Oftentimes, people's experience of the same thing, abortion, for example, is both good and evil, depending on what you believe. Undoubtedly, those who claim to know what is good and evil invalidate certain people's experience. Maybe the breadth of human experience is too vast for there to be agreed good and evil. Maybe it's just intention over time that will tell if something is good or evil. That's a really thoughtful and thought-provoking question. How do we understand good versus evil without a religious foundation? That's one of the things that's helpful about a religious text. It just kind of tells us what's good and evil. A more difficult thing is applying that text to modern day, because almost all of the religious texts are very, very old. I'll say this, toward the end of that question, the questioner highlights that invalidating others' experiences is an almost a necessary part of defining good and evil specifically. And that's based on his previous statement that good and evil kind of change from your point of view. I remember first learning this in one of my theology classes in college where the professor said, hey, imagine yourself late at night, you're hungry, you order a pizza, you eat the pizza, and the pizza is good. And then a few hours later, you wake up in the middle of the night with such an uncomfortable stomach because, wow, you ate that greasy pizza too late in the evening and your body wasn't ready to process that. And now you feel terrible and you end up getting sick everywhere. And Okay, now the pizza actually feels kind of evil. But then the next morning you miss your alarm because you got sick in the middle of the night. You miss your class and you miss a pop quiz. You find out from your friends, there was a pop quiz in the class. Basically everybody failed except for the people who didn't show up to class that day who didn't have to take the pop quiz. Instead, they just have to do a homework assignment that you can actually easily ace. And now all of a sudden you're like, oh man, maybe the pizza was good, even though it made me sick, but it caused me to miss the pop quiz. Which is to say, over time, with hindsight, we can perhaps identify good and evil with a little more accuracy, but in the moment, it's very difficult to know which is which. Factoring in other people's experiences being different than mine, and also factoring in that my own experience will change for me over time as it starts to unfold the ripples of consequences. My point is that I really don't know how to identify good and evil with the kind of confidence that I used to. There are certainly human activities that I am immediately averse to. Can I call them just evil de facto, because I am averse to them? Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Righteous Mind, would argue no. Uh, I'm not going to quote the book at length, but here's what I'll say. The question of good and evil is a moral judgment issue. And according to Jonathan Haidt, moral judgments are a psychologically very complex thing. If you want to know more about that, check out The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. All right, next question. This is from a guitar player friend from college who still lives in Minneapolis. He says, how do you feel like your journey through this process would have been different if your dad was still around? Do you think that would have helped or hurt or both? This is a really personal question, but I'm so glad it's been asked. Like I said in the first two episodes of Deconstruction, I respect and admire and love my father so much. And my journey through Deconstruction as an evangelical I don't want that blowing back on him because I think my dad was a great guy. 
I was actually just discussing this with my sister last night. It's a touchy thing because, and I'm just going to say this point blank, I don't think my dad was correct about everything that he believed. I don't think anyone is correct about everything they believe. In fact, my dad was very open about certain beliefs of his that changed over the course of his life. I imagine if he were to have continued living, other beliefs of his would have also changed. It's a very natural process, and I want to say specifically that my dad was really good at navigating that process in himself and with me as I grew from not just a child to an adolescent, but an adult, an adult with my own family and my own career and my own reputation. My dad was always there at my side, willing to engage with me and increasingly comfortable with disagreement between us. The process of my deconstruction, I imagine, would have been a pretty difficult thing for him. And I could say that partly because I'm noticing that it's a difficult thing for my mother. But at this point, I want to also hugely, massively commend my mother for the way that she has engaged with me. Her love for me as her son has not wavered one bit. And I've watched her use that love as a way to navigate her own discomfort with us disagreeing. I mean, I know it's not a comfortable thing to disagree with your family members. I feel the same discomfort about the things that I disagree with about my dad's beliefs and my mom's current beliefs and even my friends who I know don't look at things exactly the same way I do. The discomfort of disagreement is real, but there's no one on earth who has navigated that discomfort with more grace and poise and love than Pam Gould. No one in relation to me has demonstrated more of those qualities than her. So I imagine if my dad was still here, there would be challenges in our relationship, new fresh challenges because of these disagreements. But in the end, I imagine his posture would be just as loving as it always had been, which in and of itself provides a lot of aid and help. I guess I'll take this opportunity to reiterate things that Misty and I have discussed in the episodes I had her on as a guest, just highlighting the importance of parenting, of loving your children, providing a safe space within the relationship of family. What a core issue for health and well-being as a human. This subject matter creates a nice segue into the next question. How does your experience with Christianity affect the way you raise your kids with respect to religion? Here's what I said on Q&A Thursday where this was asked publicly and I answered publicly. It makes me, number one, more open to their questions and concerns. Number two, less strict about the cultural specifics. And number three, committed to loving my girls no matter what they think about God or the Bible or the afterlife. And then I put in parentheses, I'm saying more or less in the first two answers here because I started my parenting experience in a very different religious posture than I'm in now. So I'm comparing my current position to my previous one. Like I shared in the last episode, Misty and I are expecting a baby girl in December and talking through my parenting intentions and strategies with her. It's a very different experience than 16 years ago when my older daughter Betty was born. This deconstruction process, like I said, it's made me more interested in their ideas, less strict about cultural specifics, and more committed to loving them, regardless of their perspective about faith. However, I think it's also important to emphasize self-awareness as a key factor in understanding religious experience. 
So I answered a different version of this question on Q&A Thursday a couple weeks ago by saying that I'm going to teach my daughters self-awareness, teach them that throughout their entire lives, or maybe not teach, but explore ways to help them cultivate self-awareness. I said this on the Q&A Thursday post, and I'll say it again now. Self-awareness is not a religion, but it is the lens through which all the rest of our religious experiences happen. If I understand why I believe something, it sheds a lot of light on what I believe. In fact, I'll take this moment to go into a theory of mine that I've been tossing around for a little while. It seems like our species as a whole is having a major breakthrough in the area of emotional intelligence and psychology. Understanding our thought process, our subconscious, and the way consciousness itself affects our experience. This breakthrough has been forming itself for the past couple hundred years, but in the scope of human existence, how long our species has been here, this is relatively new. It reminds me of the scientific revolution. The drastic changes that occurred in scientific thought during the 16th and 17th centuries had a lot of impact on religion. Because up until that point, religion had attempted to explain the natural world in ways that science then largely refuted. And there was conflict between religious perspectives and scientific perspective. And that conflict eventually resulted in the scientific perspective winning. An example would be the way the Catholic Church responded to Galileo as he suggested that the sun was in the center of the solar system. Up until that point, the church had believed that the earth was the center of the solar system, and there's even a few Bible verses in the book of Joshua that were used to reinforce this notion. The tension between Galileo and the church as a result of Galileo's scientific methods versus the church's worldview, that conflict was the result of the way the scientific revolution impacted the human experience. In other words, scientific revolution had major religious ramifications. Fast forward a few hundred years to the Industrial Revolution, it doesn't have the same impact on religion. The Industrial Revolution doesn't cause religious perspectives to turn on their head and require followers and adherents of certain beliefs to rethink their beliefs. It seems to me that the Industrial Revolution had more of an impact on the rate at which a religion could proselytize. We now have machines that can help us travel, print books and other media, and evangelize. Nothing about the message needs to change or be revisited. We just have a more effective means by which to spread the message. So the scientific revolution has a big impact on religion. The industrial revolution does not. And I think, I wonder if our society is in the midst of what could be called a psychological revolution. And I think it's going to have a big impact on religion. In fact, it's already having that impact. And that's what makes me say, I don't necessarily want to teach my daughters a specific religion. I would rather teach them about self-awareness and expose them to the way their beliefs reflect other aspects of their consciousness. Trauma, upbringing, relationships, the ego and the concept of the self. All of these things seem to be pretty intricately tied to religious doctrines. I don't feel particularly pulled toward any one religion that I want my daughters to be adherents of, I would much rather watch them gain a firm grasp of their own self-awareness and then pursue spiritual experiences through that. On that note, 
I'll move on to this next question. A Q&A Thursday participant submitted this. Would you say you believe in God, just not a Christian one? My answer was, absolutely. I'm no atheist. And I wouldn't even say that I don't believe in the Christian God. I just don't believe the Christians have a monopoly on understanding something as big as God. This goes back to what I was saying about self-awareness. I'm not calling myself a Christian these days, but that's not because I don't believe any of the aspects of Christianity. It's because I can see as I reflect on myself and why I think and feel certain things, I feel like everything is just way more complicated than the version of Christianity I was taught suggests. There's an easy, clean, perfectly squared off version of spiritual reality that evangelical Christianity presents. And the reason I believed it before, I think was intimately tied to my upbringing and my personality traits and my desire to just understand and then move on. And through developing self-awareness, I realize now it's not quite that simple. So I'm looking at the more difficult and complicated balancing act of all the various religions' ideas about God and trying to synthesize as much of that as I can. But that doesn't mean I don't believe in God or don't believe that any of the religions have anything good to offer. Like I mentioned in Deconstruction Episode 2 regarding Abraham Heschel, studying the Torah through the rabbinical perspective, I felt like it gave me the Bible back in a way that I really appreciate. I love the Bible. The Old and New Testament. I think it has a lot of good to offer. A friend of mine recently pointed out that when going through any sort of deconstruction, whether it's religious or political or cultural, new ideas start to have an allure just because they're new. And old ideas are abandoned as inferior just because they're familiar. I've seen that in myself, but I don't think that's an accurate reflection of which ideas are true or helpful or good. So at this point, I'm going back through everything that I've learned in the Bible and appreciating it anew, in addition to learning things from other religious traditions and other cultural perspectives. And all of that is an attempt to understand this concept of God, which I will say that I still very much believe in. I just know that I don't understand it. And it's from that posture that anyone who approaches me and says that they do understand God whether they call themselves a Christian or a Buddhist or whatever, I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm willing to listen to what they have to say, but it seems unlikely that a concept, like I mentioned, as big as God could be fully understood by any one tradition. Here's another Q&A Thursday question, and this one is really a doozy. The participant says, For real though, what do you think of Christians who attribute everything that happens to God? Now, I understood this question to be kind of revolving around God taking credit for or responsibility for all of the events in the world, as if God is the author of everything that ever happens, writing the storyline of existence in its entirety. Here was my public answer typed out on Instagram. Well, this question tackles a philosophical subject that far transcends religion. Determinism versus free will is an extremely long-standing debate, and for good reason. It really feels like I have autonomy over my actions and can therefore freely choose my behavior, which of course has consequences that affect others. 
and yet no one is truly free. We are all bound by physical limitations, finite intelligence, and an ever-changing scope of knowledge, for example. Many, many, many things are outside of our control, and the experience of, quote, fate, or a supernatural force, is well documented in almost all cultures and societies. And to be honest, I'm not sure where I currently fall on that debate. I still often find myself imagining that the world is following a plan that something or someone made beforehand, and everything is just going according to plan. That would sure fly in the face of my notion that I can control my own life and my own outcome. And instead, I'm just kind of careening toward whatever fate has decided my end will be. Same with society as a whole and existence as a whole. This is one of the core tenets of Calvinism, the particular doctrinal version of Christianity that I was a part of for so much of my 20s. Calvinists believe that God fully controls all outcomes because God authored those outcomes long ago. And what feels like autonomy and, quote, free will in all of us as human beings or even just the way the world works, it's just a mirage. Really, we're all just puppets. Now, Calvinists don't like the word puppet, but that's very much the concept that they're explaining. And I gotta say, there are moments in my life where I feel like that's what's happening, where the conclusion of events is unfolding in a way that no one could stop. No amount of pushback or agency or will on my part could resist the wave of fate. I'm just being honest and saying it, it does sometimes feel like that. But for every moment that takes that shape, I also have a lot of moments where I can tell that my reality is the result of my participation. That kind of thing feels very apparent in what would be described as moods, for example. My mood is almost entirely a construct of my own self. And I can kind of just change it whenever I want to. I think there's even some truth to the law of attraction. Behaving and believing and even moving toward a reality that doesn't yet exist helps to eventually create that reality's existence. I really don't know what to make of these two sides of the spectrum. They both feel equally plausible and equally problematic. I'm going to finish up today's episode content with one more question posed to me partially by my sister in discussions with her. Misty has asked this of me, and this is a question I even kind of ask myself just in an effort to increase self-awareness and understand myself better. The question is, why worry about any of this? Why go through the process of rethinking aspects of my worldview, of my faith, of my upbringing? Why not just accept what I've been taught and then move on to the rest of life? Life is easier. I mean, from a pragmatic standpoint, life is easier if a worldview is settled and then one can just work outward from there. I suppose my answer is that, yes, I understand that certain aspects of life would be easier if I were to just adopt a single worldview early on, stick with that, and then use it as a foundation to work outward into other things. That's certainly more pragmatic and probably more convenient. But my life experience has demonstrated time and again that my perspectives benefit from being sharpened, adjusted, and, in many instances, reconsidered. 
Organizational psychologist and author Adam Grant talks about this subject in his latest book, Think Again. The book tackles the subject of unlearning, as he calls it, where an individual is faced with the notion that information they've carried through their life up to this point is, in fact, incorrect. I mentioned this in Deconstruction Part 2 regarding the way science needs to constantly revisit its conclusions in light of new data. Here's a quote from Grant. Learning requires the humility to admit what you don't know today. Unlearning requires the integrity to admit that you were wrong yesterday. And what I'm saying here is that I've had that uncomfortable experience of realizing that something I thought last week or last month or last year was wrong and I have to revisit the conclusion. I've had that experience over and over again for my whole life. As a student in school, as a musician, relationally with my friends and family, politics, science, all sorts of subjects where, yeah, it it feels comfortable to think that I know what I'm talking about and that my perspectives are accurate. And then I learn a little more and realize, oh, shoot, I was wrong. Here's another quote from Adam Grant in his book, Think Again. Part of the problem is cognitive laziness. We often prefer the ease of hanging on to old views over the difficulty of grappling with new ones. Yet there are also deeper forces behind our resistance to rethinking. Questioning ourselves makes the world more unpredictable. It requires us to admit that the facts may have changed, that what was once right may now be wrong. Reconsidering something we believe can deeply threaten our identities, making it feel as if we're losing a part of ourselves. Now here's an interesting side note that I want to introduce to this whole subject matter. As a musician... I have regularly experienced what that quote describes. There have been many instances where I've listened to music that I used to love, music that I used to revere, and I hear a lot of problems in it or just things about it that I don't enjoy anymore. And I realize that I've changed. As a music listener, as a musician, as an artist, as a thinker regarding drums and music as a whole, I've adjusted. I don't know if you could call it growth, we don't need to assume that the adjustment is always in an upward direction, but I, but I have changed and I realize that as a result, my opinions and conclusions are changing. This is a pretty consistent theme in artistic journeys, but it's not a consistent theme in, let's say, engineering. Mathematics don't change. So if I were an engineer or an accountant, I can imagine that my life wouldn't have quite as many experiences forcing me to rethink and reconsider what I know. And so in that sense, I want to grant that my personality being prone toward the art world and then my life experience soaking in the art world as an artist and musician for the past 30 years, I'm uniquely positioned to embrace this idea that what I know right now might be wrong and I might be reconsidering it in the coming years. My point here is that When someone asks me, why are you deconstructing? Why are you bothering to revisit your worldview? The answer is that I can't help it. It's an itch that I have to scratch. And I think that's because of my life experience, both as an artist and just in honest conversation with myself, realizing how often I'm wrong and how often new information has helped me clarify what was incorrect about the information I had prior. And in that sense, I hope this itch that I need to scratch never goes away. I hope that for the rest of my life, 
I'm rethinking and relearning and clarifying what it is that I know and how I look at the world. Yes, the perpetual itch of always having to revisit what I think I know can get annoying, but it's just part of who I am, and it would be much more annoying to leave that itch unscratched. take some time and highlight the music you've been hearing during this episode. It's known as Hindustani. It's from the northern regions of the Indian subcontinent, also known as Indian classical music or northern Indian classical. Hindustani music has very old roots, all the way back to 3rd or 4th century AD. The Hindustani tradition and its emphasis on improvisation diverged from other Indian classical musics around the 12th century AD, but in comparison to every other form of music that I've used on this show, Hindustani music is by far the oldest. The interesting thing about Hindustani music's age is that it hasn't really changed. Over these hundreds and hundreds of years that the music has been prominent in that culture, it's the same few instruments uh, predominantly the sitar, the timbre of which you probably recognize from like Beatles records or the soundtrack for Indiana Jones movies or whatever. The sitar, uh, the sarad, sarangi and the violin are popular. Percussion-wise, it's a hand drums that you play with your fingers known as the tabla or the pakavaj. But even if you just think about the short history of jazz music, which in the United States is older than rock and roll, you've got the introduction of amplification, electric pianos, effects pedals, and the evolution of the way drums and bass and guitar are manufactured. All of those changes really impacted the way jazz music sounded, and Hindustani music has basically sounded like what you're hearing right now for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The track you're hearing right now is called Dune by Ravi Shankar and Ala Raka. Uh, Ravi Shankar is playing the sitar, Ala Raka is playing the tabla. And an interesting thing about this track is an aspect of Hindustani music that goes back to Sufi times. They have a tradition of religious neutrality. Masterful northern Indian classical musicians who are Hindu are addressed as Pandit, and musicians who are Muslim will be addressed as Ustad. And Ravi Shankar is more commonly known in the Hindustani world as Pandit Ravi Shankar, whereas Alaraka is known as Ustad Alaraka. In other words, this is a Hindu and a Muslim jamming together. I first started listening to Hindustani music back in college because of its improvisational nature. The tabla player and the sitar player in this track are spontaneously composing their ideas and they're bouncing their ideas off of each other in real time and things are evolving. It's very similar to jazz and I was just fascinated with 
in particular the way tabla players are able to get certain sounds out of those drums and the way they use those sounds to create phrases. I spent some time studying tabla actually, uh, right around age 22, 23. It's a very difficult instrument to play, but it's also really, really quiet. So I was able to play it in the apartment that we lived in at the time, whereas I've never been able to play my drum set in an apartment. I rarely play tabla these days, but I'm really glad I took that period and learned what I did about it, and I listen to Hindustani music all the time. This Ravi Shankar track that you're hearing now, as well as the Rakesh Chareja track that was playing at the beginning of the episode, they're both featured on a playlist of Hindustani music that I made on Spotify a couple years ago. I'm going to close this episode with a full track by a flautist named Ronu Majumdar, accompanied by the tabla player Abhijit Banerjee. This song is called Rag Jainjodi. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but I will have the names of these artists and these tracks typed out in the show notes. So check that out or else head over to my Patreon to find links to this playlist I mentioned earlier. I'm absolutely mesmerized by the sonic quality of northern Indian flute and the control that Ronu demonstrates the technical prowess that he has on a flute it's just incredible to me but as I mentioned many episodes ago regarding how I listen to music when I hear a track like this one you're about to hear I don't focus on left brain observations like the difficulty of flute technique or even the complexity of his note choices It's just the right brain impact that this music makes on me that draws me in. The combination of beauty and peace is almost overwhelming. And then the tabla player comes in and there's some groove to it. You can hear the musicians interacting with each other. I'm a huge fan of this music. I hope you enjoy it as well. Thanks for listening to the show.
the Steve Gould Show.